Welcome back to Damn Good Brands. Jeremy Reed is the founder and CEO of PinchMe.com, the leading digital hub for CPG manufacturers to acquire new customers and increase sales through targeted and data-driven sampling. Since launching in 2012, PinchMe's community has grown to over 8 million members with $35 billion in collective spending power on consumer products and has powered sampling campaigns for multiple Fortune 500 CPG companies, including Kraft, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Kellogg's, Reckitt Benkiser, and Nestle, to name a few. The origin of PinchMe started with Jeremy's observation that the CPG sampling programs, in effect, were pretty inefficient and ineffective, a problem that Jeremy sought to fix by building an entire business around innovative and data-centric approaches to sampling. In this interview, Jeremy gets into his overall entrepreneurial origin story and gets into how he overcame multiple obstacles in launching his own company, only to turn it into a major success story on today's episode of Damn Good Brands. Now, without further ado, here is Pinch Me founder and CEO, Jeremy Reed. Um, you know, finished college, actually set up my own hedge fund business, um, did that for about 10 years. Um, and my business there was investing in New York hedge funds out of Australia. Okay. I essentially set up the first fund of hedge funds in the Australian market uh, and did that for a while. And then, you know, going through 2008, when you kind of had the financial crisis, decided that, you know, the ability to charge fees on fees um, kind of was a little bit challenging and decided to sell the company and I got out of the space um, at that time. And then I was literally just walking through our city one day and uh, somebody offered me a product sample. Um, from you know PNG, and I just thought to myself, you know, it's really interesting that in this day and age where you know everybody's talking about data and technology, and most industries had been digitized, mm -hmm. that people are still on the street handing out you know free consumer products, hoping for the best. And I started thinking about that and thinking about, well, you know, I wonder if you could use you know the smartphone, which you know ten years ago was just kind of coming out. Um, and thinking about kind of how well, how can I use a smartphone to you know target people with the right products. And then, you know, e-com was on its way up at that time. And how do I drive them back to purchase? And that kind of really just, you know, started this whole kind of discovery into the consumer product space, which I really had no prior experience. Um, really started my kind of in interest in whole digital marketing, you know, lead generation, and really just consumer research. And as I dug deeper into what was happening in the industry, I realized that there were, you know, hundreds of millions of free products given out every day of the week in very much what you know we call spray and pray right and hoping that you will hit your target audience and really with the use of technology um you know and the, and the smartphone really kind of allowed this business to to happen and uh, you couldn't have done this 20 years ago yeah yeah so once so you that's kind of how the sorry got started okay yeah cool. and then i went around and looked at my rolodex and who do i know within the cpg space um, and, you know, kind of then started reaching out to these people and, you know, asked me to explain to me how you launch a consumer product. How do you market a consumer product? How do you drive awareness? You know, how do you then go try to get trial? You know, how do you, what, what's been successful in launches and, and why do you think it's been successful and what has failed and what are the reasons why it's failed? And, you know, in all my conversations, product sampling was a huge part of their strategy, but very hard to put down an ROI. Yeah, uh, and I thought that was really interesting as well because they, they kind of know it works. The intuition said, "Yeah, we know that when you get the product into the hands of the right consumer, they're going to love it. They're going to go buy. It's the best way to market the product." 
but very hard to find that consumer, very hard to measure the success and very hard to you know scale that. I thought, oh, that's like music to my ears. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I've seen a lot of really inefficient sampling programs either through direct mail and I get things in the mail that have nothing to do with me or my lifestyle or anything. So being yeah. able to put the pieces together that through with data and with what the internet is or was, you know, back then, um, yeah. sounds like it was a real insight. So once you had validated the idea and had the idea, what were the next steps in you launching the actual launching the, the actual company? From what I understand, yeah. you launched in Australia first, but like, how'd you get those first right. few clients? How'd you get your investors all on board? What was the, yeah. uh, once the idea so, was there? Yeah, so once I kind of worked out that I had something to talk about, um, through a contact of mine, actually put me in touch with the CEO of PNG for Australia. And I went and spent some time with her early on and kind of walked through my idea. And she basically said to me in a nutshell, look, I think what you're doing is really smart. There's nothing that exists that I've seen out there that is doing what you're doing. If you're prepared to build this and, and fund it, we'll come on board and back you as a client. And as soon as I had her kind of confidence uh, that she was there, that then gave me the kind of confidence to go out there and, you know, write a proper business plan. Um, and then through another connection of mine, um, they put me in touch with a guy called David Droger, mm -hmm. who at the time owned Droger 5 in New York. And I flew across to New York and went and saw him and walked him through my idea. And he was actually my first investor in the business. Oh, wow. And, you know, he kind of had a, he had Kraft, he had Unilever, he had all these major groups and there's been, you know, a bit of a, didn't realize at the time, a bit of a legend in the industry and a bit of a rock star. And he thought, look, I think this is a great idea and I can definitely help you with client introductions, you know, when you're ready to come into the US. They also had an Australian business at the time, mm -hmm. but, you know, obviously they're bigger in the US. Um, and he said, and I'm, you know, keen to put some money in and, and help you bring this to life. And then off the back of that kind of commitment, I then came back to Australia and went around and saw a whole lot of kind of families that had invested prior in my hedge fund business uh, and told them, you know, this is what the plan is. I've got the support of PNG, I've got the support of Droger 5 out of New York. Um, and then we kind of very quickly round, you know, raised our seed capital. Um, and then from there, we just started building and, you know, put together the team. Um, we, the idea was to launch first in Australia. We thought, you know, Australia is a much smaller market. Let's test this out before we go kind of, you know, big time in the US. Um, and, you know, within six months of launching in Australia, I was living in New York. Um, and we kind of then sold Australia a couple of years later. Um, and really then just been focusing now exclusively on the U.S. market um, over the past eight years. Great, great. And just to back up a little bit, so you started a hedge fund right out of college. How did you have the financial wherewithal or the ability to do that? Because that um, sounds really impressive. Yeah, no, I think I just got lucky. A relation of mine invited me to, um, when I finished college, you know, I said, what are you going to do? And I said, look, I, you know, I love investing. I love the markets. Um, you know, I, I you know, loved, not sure exactly what I want to do, but I've been investing my own capital capital through college. You know, I've done pretty well from an ROI standpoint. Uh, you know, it's a space that I, I'm very passionate about. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I'm about to do a roadshow where I visit all the fund managers in New York that I've given my own capital to. And he was essentially running his own fund of fund portfolio. And he was, you know, 60 years old, retired and you know, just now became a professional investor. And I was like, well, I'd love that opportunity. Thank you very much. And essentially, I uh, came over to New York. I was 23 years of age, spent uh, about three weeks you know, in New York with him, you know, going around and visiting all the fund managers. At the end of the trip, um, I said, you know what? I know what sort of business I'm going to you know, set up with your support and your access. You know, would you help me run, you know, put together a fund of funds and offer that to high net worth and institutional investors 
in the Australian market? And, you know, thankfully he said yes. And really he gave me the entree into all these great people. He showed me kind of how you went through the diligence process, what to look for in a good fund manager, what to avoid. And he really, he kind of really built his own 20-step process into uh, understanding, you know, what is their investment strategy? What is their competitive edge? How do they structure the organization? What's their compensation? What conflicts of interest do you look for? How do you think about, you know, the, all the service providers, independent auditors, legal, you know, how do you think about who their investors are and how they procure their investors and lock them in? What sort of liquidity you get? You know, how do you measure their performance relative to other funds and, and the market itself? What sort of risk are they taking? And he'd really been kind of doing this for, you know, 20 years just for himself. And he really kind of gave me a very fast and quick education on how do you invest with other fund managers and how to ensure, you know, worry about the downside and let the upside look after itself. It's kind of his attitude. Um, and off the back of that, you know, when I built a business where we actually um, end up raising about $3 billion of capital. We were wow. the largest private allocator to New York hedge funds out of Australia prior to me exiting that business. Wow. Yeah. So we had a great run um, and it's a great space. And, you know, obviously the, you know, the issue, the only issue in the, in the business model is the fact that someone's giving us capital to invest in another fund manager and then invest in the market. Right. So you are one step removed and there's an extra layer of fees. Yeah. So in, you know, in, in stable to you know, strong markets, people don't mind paying fees on fees, but obviously when you go through an 08 where people start losing capital across the board, you know, they obviously look at everything and, and fees became an issue. Yeah. Um, that being said, the fund of fund business has, you know, evolved and grown and, uh, you know, it's, it's bigger than ever today. Um, but we just took a view at the time that it was kind of, we had a great run and it was time to exit. Wow. That's a hell of a real world MBA, <laughs> they would call that. <laughs> yeah. Really cool. Okay. Uh, and we also just had first move advantage. You know, right. no one in Australia had really seen, you know, New York based hedge funds before. So we were able to bring out some pretty good talent to the Australian market. I was able to take institutions to New York on a road show and put them in front of, you know, the who's who of the hedge fund world. And, um, you know, obviously they're pretty impressive individuals. Yeah. Um, and then also being from Australia gave us very good access. They, they liked having the global diversification oh, and there you go. investors from Australian institutions, uh, which they can then lean on if they were looking at something in this part of the world or wanted some you know, insight. Yeah. So that worked. So as an investor, have you uh, gone down the crypto NFT rabbit hole at all yet? You know, it's, it's a really interesting question because um, I own a little bit of crypto just out of interest, but it's something that I found very hard to get my head around. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people that I still respect in the industry, you know, are not believers. And so it's hard when you talk to all these smart people all the time and they're not kind of, you know, they believe that the te underlying technology and the blockchain and the way that things are structured and, and the ledger and the smart contract mm -hmm. is brilliant and that's going to really change the world. It's going to be the internet in, you know, in, in 1999 when the internet really, or 2000, it kind of came out of the bubble and then really evolved into an industry. Yeah. Um, that's what the kind of the blockchain is. So we're 20 years away from what it's going to be. Um, and, it, and as big as the internet is today, it's back then. So, you, so anyone who's buying um, some of these coins that are linked to smart contracts and blockchain are going to do exceptionally well. Yeah. Some of these cryptocurrencies themselves that have no purpose, have no ability of generating income, have no intrinsic value, and are purely priced based on supply demand. You know, you have to then question what is the future of these? Yeah. Uh, and that's where I think there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of theft involved. There's a lot of kind of, you know, pyramid schemes and spruiking and, um, and people, you know, staking prices and getting paid ridiculous amounts of interest 
where the best investors in the world can't generate these returns, how is a, this coin able to pay you a you know, 12, 15, 20% interest rate? Yep. And they're paying with their own coin. So they're kind of creating their own fictitious currency and value that they're paying you more of, which we can't do anything with. Right. That, I don't, that part of the market, I don't believe, and I think that's going to be a, a zero. Um, but the part where you're actually creating real, you know, a real business uh, where you actually at some point you know, are charging fees to use your service and those fees will translate at some point into a you know, financial metrics and you'll determine that Ethereum is worth X because it has so much gas fees, so many users, they're all paying fees to use the network. That's a real business. Yeah. yeah. So I'm more focused on stuff that I believe can actually generate cash flow. Um, and if they can generate cash flow, they'll sustain yeah. No, I agree. I think that there's there's so many new cryptocurrencies coming out and you know a lot of them are fake, entirely fake. Yeah. And I think if you didn't get in early with Bitcoin or Ethereum, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to find the next one because most of them are, you know, BS. But but I do think the yeah. key to understanding web 3.0 is in is observing the way NFTs work and smart contracts and how the blockchain operates because no, I totally agree. I think in a few years blockchain is going to dominate the web and make yeah. everything so much more efficient. Yeah, and the way I think about it is, you know, when the internet first started, it was more about companies producing information to you. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, you know, companies just putting up their website and having it like an announcement board or, or just go, here's my price list, go to the website and you can see what I'm selling. That was kind of the first stage of the internet. Then the second stage of the internet was companies like, you know, Facebook, you know, providing, well, Amazon providing marketplaces. So here's a big company that's behind it, that's organizing where consumers would come and they'd be able to interact, um, you know, but it's all, all administered through an inf infrastructure, you know, banks doing it and consumers can come and they're doing it. This whole Web3 is now allowing consumers to deal directly with consumers. Mm -hmm. and, and I think people are kind of looking at it in this kind of NFT world as being art as one way to transfer art between each other. But to me, that, that's evolving into everything. Yep. You know, you'd be able to potentially buy property you know, directly from a consumer to a consumer without where it's, you know, logged on the blockchain and not have any third party be involved in any way. The same way that you can transfer yeah. money, the same way that you can you know, transfer property, the same way that you can buy tickets to a concert, you know, where somebody has bought a, you know, the, uh, I saw Kings of Leon issued, a, you know, 100 front row seats as NFTs. Mm. Those people now own those NFTs. They can now transfer them to somebody else as an asset and they own it. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of really interesting in the way that we can kind of interact between each other and not have to have anybody else involved in that transaction. And it's all done through a public ledger where, you know, it's disclosed on what we're doing, but you know, there's no third party needed. And that's a big kind of transition. Yeah. I think the lawyers and the agents and the realtors are going to hate blockchain because <laughs> it's going to yeah. alleviate, you know, the need for them. But you no, know, I think in real estate, I mean, if you orchestrate that smart contract, you can put in some, you can make it. So every time, whatever that property, whenever it changes hands, you get 5% or whatever in, in perpetuity. That's how the NFTs work now, but we yeah. can do it with real tangible things. But yeah, I mean, again, I think, what are the tangible real world indications of NFTs in this time period? I think that, that therein lies the insight as to what Web3 is going to be, you know? Yeah, and I think it's great. I think it's great. I mean, it's just, you know, that's just evolution and, yeah. you know, technology to make everything more efficient. Yeah. Um, and we're thinking about that within our own business. Um, yeah. You know, I think it kind of, you know, we create our own coin actually. And, oh. you know, members get coins um, where it's not on the blockchain yet or haven't done anything kind of too sexy with it. 
but it's just a way for us to gamify our experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you provide your feedback on time, on samples, you probably get more coins. You refer friends to the website and grow, you get more coins. You participate in ads, um, or, you know, sign up to some of our partner offers, you can get coins. And then you can go and ship those coins. And at some point, you know, we'll let you convert your coins into a cryptocurrency of your wish and, you know, do it that way. Or you can use your coins to, you know, go and buy the latest skincare, the latest iPhone if you want it. So we have in a way create our own kind of currency and our own coin uh, off the back of what's happening with the crypto world. Yeah. Done in our own, you know, unique way, which then just drives further kind of, you know, member retention and, and it's kind of, you know, some kind of, you know, fun, good uses out of what they're doing. Well, that's interesting. That's really, really cool. Well, beyond that, obviously, in the past two years, a lot has changed with COVID and shopping habits have changed substantially. What has the past year been or the past two years been like for Pinch Me with with COVID and sampling and people not going yeah. into stores? Yeah, so I think definitely 2020 was a bit of a pause across the board. I think there's a bit of a just panic. Um, you know, everybody just kind of froze. Yeah. Um, you know, people didn't know what was really going on. Everybody shifted early in 2020 to a work from home process, you know. So I think for about three months, it was basically like, you know, very little activity happening across the board. But everybody was just kind of trying to work out what's going on. Really, you know, how bad is this virus? What's it going to mean? You know, you know, I think kind of everything just kind of backed up. Um, that being said, there was a lot of kind of um, stockpiling of, product mm -hmm. uh, where people thought they weren't going to have to go to the supermarket and people were buying, you know, toilet paper and they're running out of toilet paper. And like, as if it was like a wartime like environment where you're stocking up on water and all the essentials. So from an actual client perspective, they had like this amazing rush on product where they weren't really ready for demand. And we, you know, work with a lot of these fast food consumer goods where, you know, people go and buy toothpaste, but they don't typically buy, you know, once a month, they're buying for three months looking out. And so that was really interesting. The some of these brands all of a sudden had this massive spike in demand. Anything cleaning related, you know, health related, um, you know, wellness related, kind of just, you know, just household essentials, canned foods kind of had this great spike. So that was really nice, actually, because it provided these cap companies with massive cap in capital injections. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they're like, all right, let's, how do we capitalize on this? And then they looked, okay, what's the, what, what can we do? We obviously can do some more digital advertising. Um, but a lot of them actually pivoted to, all right, well, let's do more samples, get them into people's homes. This is a great time for us to drive e-commerce. And e-commerce then saw this kind of massive, you know, rise. I think they had five years of e-com growth happen within six months. Oof. And that was great for us because we were always big believers that, you know, if you ship product into someone's home, once they've tried it, they actually don't need to go in store and buy. We can always retarget them back through a walmart.com or amazon.com to purchase mm -hmm. and hopefully they'll buy the stuff at the same time. And we can obviously get paid as an affiliate marketer for that as well. So we're now incentivized to drive you through to e-commerce, which works to us rather than going in store. Um, and the retailers are all trying to drive the e-commerce growth. So we kind of saw a little bit of a period early on where there's a bit of a pause, a bit of a kind of let's try and work out what's happening. And then all of a sudden this bang of kind of, you know, activity and purchase activity came into the space. Uh, and then the brands really, you know, pivoted very quickly. A lot of them then shifted to, you know, really how do we, okay, this is going to, we can see this is going to be sustained. Let's now rethink about our marketing plan. Forget about doing any in-store activation. Nobody's going to take anything from a stranger again for a long time. Yeah. So all, you know, street-based sampling activations got cancelled. All events got cancelled. All in-store demos got cancelled. And we ultimately became one of the last brands standing. 
And so the last kind of two years, you know, we've had a great run in the business. We just finished off a record year uh, for the company in terms of both, um, you know, revenue and profit. Um, and, you know, we've, it's continued into 2022. Uh, and so as you see this more variance come at Omnicom, you know, in a, in a funny way, it actually helps our business. Yeah. You know, the more that, you know, people kind of do stay at home, are concerned about, you know, you know, having to wear a mask and going into a supermarket, um, you know, brands then need to think about, well, how do, how do we kind of have a more direct relationship with the consumer? How do we get into their home? How do we promote our products? How do we conduct research in an environment where it needs to be remote um, and ideally at scale? And so we're in a very kind of fortunate position. You know, some businesses, yeah. you know, crushed through COVID. You know, we, you know, you know touch wood flourished through COVID and, and see that. And then we think these trends are here to stay. Like things definitely revert back to the norm. Mm-hmm. And people do have short-term memories and will, you know, ultimately get back to life yeah. once we do processing passes. But habits also do shift. Right. And I think people have, um, a couple of things is, you know, one, um, people have realized that they can do a lot more from home. Uh, and, you know, and people now want to work more from home. They're kind of, in, you know, they now like, you know, do like the like work-life balance and the fact they can be around their families more and, you know, have, have breakfast with their kids, take them to school, come back and work, you know, pick up their children, not have to travel an hour in and out of, you know, the city to get to work. Um, companies themselves have realised that there's huge cost savings not having to maintain an office and, you know, having to, you know, pay rent and pay maintenance and pay upkeep and everything that goes along with, you know, having a physical office space if they can avoid it or even limit it where, yeah. you know, people can rotate. Um, I think people have realised... You know, a lot of people now realize how amazing the Amazon business is. Like if you were on Amazon Prime before and you signed up and you use Amazon, I mean, there's no other, there's no better business in the world. Okay. Um, if you're trying to buy a consumer product to get it delivered to your door in two days, free shipping. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, it's a game changer. And I think, you know, their, their, you know, their earnings power and share price appreciation, I think just two days ago, the share price popped 15% on their results. <laughs> really just highlights kind of, you know, what they're seeing in the shift towards that sort of business model. Yeah. It's taken a while to get there and it's, you know, it's a great success story, one of the greatest, but they really like just kind of crushed it through this period. Yeah. Um, and we, we kind of tried to align ourselves to businesses like that. But we knew a, a great business is once you use it once you're going to love it and you're going to see a great repeat business. Just to get, once you get on it, it's very hard to get off yeah. that train. Um, and so we've kind of seen these big structural shifts occur now. Uh, that we think are kind of, you know, kind of beneficial to our business. Um, and the other area that I just mentioned is kind of the whole, the whole digital marketing. Again, as everything has become more and more digital uh, in, the, in the kind of media space, mm-hmm. you know, our ability to capture data on our consumers and then show them targeted ads uh, and, you know, make that even performance-based, which a lot of our advertisers are, uh, that we kind of can, you know, really for us to quickly test and, and offer, see how it performs, look at the demographic that will perform the best with and, you know, promote that to that segment of the audience, uh, you know, he's really giving us amazing kind of, you know, CPCs and CPAs mm-hmm. for our, you know, um, our members and they're loving the traffic. So there's kind of a, like, I think that space, you know, what's, I think what's interesting is, you know, Facebook's earnings were a bit disappointing this week. Yep. And I think it's really just, you know, just a, you know they've got more competition. You know, I think they were clearly, you know, the best of what they do and the ability to, kind of, you know, capture data and show targeted ads, but everybody else is kind of seeing what they've done and see how they've been successful and are now applying the same smarts in their business. Yeah. And now everybody's using, you know, data in a smarter way to try and optimise what they're doing and, and be more targeted in the way that they act. 
Um, and so everybody's now catching up. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an interesting time in, in that regard. And yeah, it sounds like your digital media space is getting pretty interesting. And that's, that's a relatively new innovation for pinch me. Could you, uh, yeah. could you tell us more about that and how it came about? Well, I mean, the, an example could be, um, you know, we slim fast, who's a great client of ours, you know, who's you know very much in the, you know, the weight management or weight loss process comes to us and says, um, you know, we're looking to target people that suffer from diabetes, that work out at least twice a week, that are looking for a you know keto diet. We've got a new keto product. We've just launched Walmart. Um, we'd love to sample, you know, 200,000 units. So we can then do a pre-qualification um, or we already have the data, you know, based on these consumers through our profile. And then we show the sample to those members. Um, we can then approach Peloton um, and say, look, you know, we've now just pre-qualified for this program. Obviously, we're not going to disclose who the client is, but we have half a million people that are, you know, looking to, you know, for an exercise regime or want to exercise on a weekly basis and are looking to lose weight. You know, would you like to promote your, and obviously they've got a more affluent audience. We can look kind of say it's anybody with a household income over 150,000 that would probably, you know, that can afford to buy Peloton. Would you like to promote your latest offer, you know, for your mm -hmm. bike, you know, 15 months interest-free Peloton offer. So that's an example where we would, um, you know, kind of use the data we have based on our consumer business and the sampling business to then be able to approach a advertiser um, who you know got nothing, nothing with you know fast food consumer goods, but has wants to target the same demographic that we've already pre-qualified and has got a great active pool for. And then we would show that, so we take that Peloton offer, and of the five hundred thousand that we know are looking to you know, for weight loss and to exercise, there may be 150,000 that fit their targeting. And then we may test that out just with 15,000 members. Wow. And, see how performance. and then from those 15,000, we can extrapolate, yeah, this is a great offer. It resonated well. It's maybe one to push out to the whole audience or we prefer it's not going to perform, therefore we won't waste each other's time. And so we can do that on, you know, we do have over 200 active advertisers working with at the moment. Um, you know, we can very quickly kind of deliver them great traffic or tell them it's, you know, just be up front and say, look, it's not going to work with our demographic. Um, you know, and you guys, it doesn't cost you anything, it hasn't cost us anything. We also don't want to waste those impressions. Right. So we're able to very efficiently optimize every touch point with our members, knowing that we're showing them the best type of ad for who they are at the right time. Yeah, that's great. It's fascinating. It's, it's like, it sounds like yeah. a whole new business model on top of your existing yeah. one. Very it's cool. great. And so as we scale the sampling business and the audience grows and the data gets richer and richer, so will our ability to keep bringing on more and more advertisers. And it kind of really create our own ecosystem. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, last few questions here. Um, as a entrepreneur, were there any really formidable books that were uh, that were important to you as, throughout the course of the development of your company and and all of that? Any either on entrepreneurship, leadership, anything along those lines, or even fiction? Some people are really inspired by yeah. you know works of fiction. Actually, look, I, think, I mean, definitely having the right team. Um, so you know, I think you know we've now we've got a core team of about twenty people. Uh, we've actually downsized the team when COVID hit. Basically, went from thirty people to twenty people. And we just thought, you know what, when everything froze, we're like, all right. We also obviously moved to a remote office, like everybody in New York City did. And we're like, all right, we just got to be super lean. We're going to be really silly by this. Who knows how long this is going to go on for? You know, who knows what's going to happen to our clients with the ability to pay the bills? Right. And we just thought, well, let's just cut back expenses. It was a good opportunity to also clean house 
as you can imagine, I'm sure you guys did the same thing. Um, and we actually really haven't added staff. And I think what happened was we kind of got rid of a lot of middle management. My core team, I've got eight people that have been with the business pretty much since day one. Well, really the first year of, of operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started hiring them. And I think those guys all stepped up. You know, they've kind of, they matured really well over the past eight years. They know exactly what they need to do in their business. And they really, I think that was kind of amazing to see them really kind of um, really just mature as managers. Um, and they had their support staff. And now we're doing more business than ever with less staff. And, and we also then really lean on technology. And we everyone looked at, okay, how do we make technology more, you know, to our benefit, make our business more efficient, really to cut out, um, you know, a lot of the middlemen. And I think that's been an amazing change. So we are, you know, revenues at record, expenses at record low, revenues at um, record high and profits at record high. And um, and everyone's obviously reaps the benefit from that yeah. you know, as a business. Uh, so I think that kind of, I think kind of the team, uh, and you, I think going into the pandemic, with a new team would have been very difficult. Yeah. Um, and so we were just lucky that we had the tenure together, um, that everybody, you know, had the ability to work from home, be mature about it, get the work done and really step up and they need to step up. Um, I mean, other areas are kind of key lessons, you know. Um, I mean, one thing we haven't done, which we do need to do at some point, is we, we're just a web experience. Mm-hmm. You know, we mobile web, and that's one that we kind of keep pushing off. You're kind of building an app uh-huh. around the experience. And I think that the issue has been that as we've been evolving as a business, um, you know, we kind of, you know, every year we kind of add on new features to what we're doing um, and you know, to be able to, as a small business, to have really desktop, have mobile, so, you know, it's mobile responsive, uh, and then to have an app is just a third layer of, of management you need to you know, put in place because when you, and also we do a lot of A-B testing. And so we're very big on any time we have a new feature or, or something new on the website, you know, we'll put it out to 20% of the audience mm-hmm. compared to 80% of the control. We'll see how it performs. I mean, if it's underperforms, you may need to make some tweaks to it until we really see that it's actually outperforming the control and then you launch to the broader audience. Okay. You can't do that with an app. You know, with an app, you can't have two versions of your app. There's only one. So in the way that we run our business where we have the luxury of, you know, testing and learning, testing and learning until you have, you know, complete confidence. This is what we've done is, you know, materially better. Um, makes it harder. But at some point, we're going to have to bite the bullet and, and have an app because I think, you know, you, know, you can do a lot more with the app right. but you limit your ability to pivot and make changes along the way. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that we've kind of constantly been debating internally about gotcha. the way forward. Makes sense. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a good run, you know, been a, a great ride. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, kind of super excited about, you know, what's to come in the next couple of years. That's great. What is next for you guys? Anything on the horizon that you're um, at liberty yeah, to I discuss? Think, yeah, I think, look, we're, we're at 8 million. You know, we've kind of done it the old-fashioned way where, you know, you, you know, through, you know, organic growth and, you know, some very smart kind of relationships where, you know, we're able to promote their platforms um, to our audience and they promote us to their audience and, you know, everybody wins. Uh, you know, as you know, you guys did a great job early on, you know, doing some initial PR. You know, we haven't done any PR since. Mm-hmm. But so we're kind of thinking about how do we go from eight to 30 million? You know, gotcha. we can easily scale as a proposition. We have, you know, the best consumer proposition. You know, you get yeah. a free box of latest consumer products in exchange for your feedback. You know, there's no consumer in the market that, you know, really doesn't want to sign up to that. Yeah. Um, 
and the broader products we're using, you know, we're across the board now in all categories. So there's always something for everybody. Um, and so I think kind of the question is, how do we scale from here? And, you know, who are the right partners to take us from 80 to 30 million? Yeah. And that's something we're thinking about. And we want to do, you, want, you don't want to go there overnight because, you know, we don't have enough consumer products to satisfy that sort of demand. So it's got to be measured. Um, but it's also got to be the right type of demographic that actually, you know, can provide value back to the brands from a data perspective and also sales. Yeah. And so we want to, we want to grow, but we want to grow in a smart way and a sensible way. Yeah. But we are keen to keep on the audience. And that's how we're to think about. And that, that's really, that's kind of, that's the gas that goes into the engine. Yeah, of course. Well, sounds pretty exciting. Well, Jeremy, thank you. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun and, uh, you know, fascinating to, to hear the inside story behind pinch me, uh, before we part ways, any parting wisdom for those aspiring entrepreneurs out there? Uh, I think you just have to have a, you know, a unquestionable belief in, in what you're doing. And, you know, there are definitely going to be days where you, you know, you have your good days and your bad days, but, you know, if you really believe in, in what you're doing and, the way you're building your business, you just got to keep your head down and just keep going, you know, keep working at it harder and harder each day. Someone once said to me, you know, there's a, there's no shortcut to success. Yeah. You know, it's just nonstop hard work. And I think that's kind of the only advice I could pass on to anybody. Great. Wise words. Well, thank you again. This was great. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nick. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to Damn Good Brands.